Welcome to the ABPMR Part 2 Examination Podcast. If you're preparing to take the exam this year, listen in as ABPMR Board Directors, Part 2 Examiners, and other Part 2 experts talk all things Part 2, including the structure of the exam, scoring, study tips, what to expect on exam day, and more. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the part two podcast. I'm Lizzie. I'm the communications coordinator for the ABPMR. And today we are joined by two ABPMR board directors to address some common misconceptions about the part two exam. So we want to make sure that you are going into the exam knowing all the facts of the exam, and we want to put any rumors you may have heard to rest. So today I'm joined by Dr. Vu Wen and Dr. Sunil Saberwal. Dr. Wen is professor and chair of PMR at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. He's the United States National Society's representative to the International Society of Physical and Rehabilitation Medicine, and he serves as an ABPMR board director as well. And Dr. Saberwal is chief of spinal cord injury at the VA Boston Healthcare System and the spinal cord injury fellowship director at Harvard Medical School in Boston. And he also serves as an ABPMR board director with Dr. Wen. So Dr. Saberwal, how long have you served as an ABPMR board director? I was hoping you wouldn't ask because I'm dating myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not as a board director, but certainly in terms of participating in the part two examiner, I I was looking back at it, it started in 2000. So it's been 10 years. So I served as an examiner, been through various iterations of the part two exam. And then since I've come on as a board director, which is over nine years ago, so is uh, I've been on the part two committee. And so in that role, I've been involved in reviewing vignettes and serving as an observer slash exam. Um, yeah. And of course, I took the part two exam many, many decades ago. Mm-hmm. Well, we're glad to have you on today. And then Dr. Wen, how long have you served as a board director and also your experience with the part two exam? Good morning, Lizzie. Very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I have been involved with the American Board of Human Arts since uh, 2010 um, as an oral board examiner. Um, I've also participated as a proctor, um, as a team leader, um, as well as participate in the uh, writing of the vignettes for the oral exam. as a board director, I have been a member of the board director for two years um, and uh, currently serve on the uh, part two examination committee, the uh, uh, governance committee, the communication committee, um, and the uh, continuing certification committee. I'm also part of the team that uh, review the process improvement projects. Mm-hmm. Now called quality improvement projects, QI. Yes. Welcome to you both. We're glad to have you on to talk about some exam misconceptions, and you both have extensive experience with part two, so you will be great to talk to about this. Um, Starting with this rumor, we hear feedback that the sentiment for the exam is the board is out to get candidates with trick questions on the exam that aren't related to what they might practice, so the board is purposely trying to trip candidates up and make it difficult for them to pass. So Dr. Wen, do you want to start and talk about this misconception? Um, Absolutely not correct. 
uh, basically the board is not out to get you. Um, and basically the purpose of the board is to ensure that physiatrists practice in the highest level of confidence possible. And so the examinations are uh, established to essentially evaluate general physiatry knowledge. Um, and the part two examination particularly is focused on um, trying to understand a physiatrist's ability to work through a case. Um, and that's really what we're looking for. Um, the vignettes that we write um, really are focused on core PM&R um, diagnoses that uh, you would expect to see in your uh, practice as a general physiatrist. I would say that, um, you know, and I think that has been stressed in other podcasts as well, that this is really an exam, not, of, not primarily of medical knowledge, but really how you apply the medical knowledge uh, to patient care, um, not just the medical knowledge, but your other clinical skills. So, um, and the exam outline is posted on the board uh, website, and that is a pretty a broad outline. It covers a variety of musculoskeletal, neurological, neuromuscular, in medical conditions that are commonly encountered in physiatric practice. But uh, in an individual case, you know, you may not be practicing in that area. You know, for example, um, only a subset of physiatrists may be practicing doing pediatric rehab. Or, or there may be typically the diagnostic categories that the vignettes are focused on are generally common things seen in practice. But say there's an occasional uh, case of say spina bifida, or yeah, you're not doing pediatrics practice, or it's a case of radiation myelopathy, and you say, oh, well, that's an esoteric kind of diagnosis. But you, you have to remember that the cases are not just based on the patient diagnosis. The other aspect that the cases are really based on is on focusing on particular aspects of patient care and management. So e even if it's spina bifida, the case may be talking about pressure injuries or a neurogenic bladder. So, so, and then it goes through those five domains that, you know, it's not just data acquisition, but also problem solving, patient management, systems-based practice, and interpersonal communication. So even if you're not familiar, as familiar with that particular diagnosis, the fact is that, okay, you might miss one or two things that may be very specific to that diagnosis in terms of data acquisition or a particular aspect of patient management, um, but you'll have plenty of opportunity to really demonstrate how you apply your physiatric knowledge and you know those foundational principles to whatever the focus is. So I think that's an important piece to, to keep in mind and not get thrown off just because it's a case um, that you don't encounter that particular diagnosis in your practice. Dr. Saberwal brings up a really excellent point that I would like to extend a little bit further. Um, you know, we want um, our, uh, the candidates to the oral exam to remember that the examiners really um, are trying to understand your thought process, um, how you work through the case, um, how you think about um, getting to the diagnosis and how you solve the management of the patient. So we're not focused on trying to trip you up or trick you into saying things that are not correct. Um, what we're really interested in is how does a physiatrist process and think through this case? 
I'll also add, Dr. Johns talked about in episode two, how once these questions for the exam are written, we, not me, but the board and volunteers and board directors, they test the questions and they do um, trial runs with them. And it's, it's a whole process of making sure that the questions are covering what we need them to cover and that um, they're appropriate for the exam. So that is in episode two, Dr. Johns talks about it, but um, that is also something we can add that these questions are not trick questions and they're vetted um, by the board through a long process of reviewing and editing. Another rumor we've heard is that candidates should only list one to two diagnoses in their differential diagnosis on the exam. And we've talked in past episodes about being thorough when listing your differential diagnosis. So Dr. Saberwal, what else can you say about this specific number candidates might have in mind of only listing one to two diagnoses? Okay. A, there is no specific number. And B, it really would depend on what the question is and what that specification. Uh, and you know, the differential diagnosis question typically comes up under the domain of problem solving. And so, uh, you know, once you've acquired your data, there may be a question, okay, well, based on this, these findings or based on X, Y, and Z finding and this imaging study or this uh, lab test, give me um, what is your potential differential diagnosis. Sometimes it will ask and what. So when you're giving this list, so I, it's important to really give a, be, have a balanced approach. So not just give the one diagnosis if it's asking for differential diagnosis. If you think that, you know, the way the case has been presented, um, that there is one diagnosis that really stands out as almost, you know, being the top of the list, then say that. Say that my most common diagnosis or the most, you know, based on, you can even give, you know, as Lou mentioned, you can, you know, it's a chance to um, um, demonstrate your thought process. You can say based on X, Y, and Z finding, the most common diagnosis that I would think of in this case is A and B. But then, um, you know, it's important to say, well, what else could it be? And so I wouldn't just necessarily say because it's asked for differential diagnosis, so don't just stop at one, but give, give a reasonable list of what you think are, you know, reasonably possible diagnosis. Now, I would caution not to give the same laundry, not to give a laundry list of diagnoses. Because sometimes candidates might tend to say that the more I say, you know, the better it is. But then A, it sounds like, you know, that same laundry list could be applied to case B, irrespective of what the case is. If you're just giving a laundry list without any thought of how that applies to this particular case. And B, there may be things that you say that are absolutely you know, that may be wrong and don't fit into the um, facts that have been presented to you. So, um, so I would be thoughtful, make it a balanced approach. I would, uh, and again, you know, say you give a couple of diagnoses and you get the sense that maybe there's, uh, you know, the examiner is asked you, you know, what else might you be think, might you think of, or um, you feel that you want to give more, but you don't think that as, that is really likely, then it's good to say that. You say you can say, you know, the other things that could be possible in this case could be X, Y, and Z, but I don't think that is high on my list because of this. So both cases, you can give your rationale and make it um, both a demonstration of your thought process and then a balanced approach to the numbers. 
you can take a little bit of a pause during the exam, you know, a second or two, just to think about it. And the most important thing is to take in the body of information that has been provided to you up to that point um, and then formulate your thoughts. Um, there is no magic number of one to two differential diagnosis. It depends on the case and depends on the, the information that's being provided for that particular case. Um, and the most important thing that we're looking for is, do you actually understand what's going on with this case? And so, you know, Dr. Sabaral brought up an excellent example. Make sure you understand the why. So when you list a differential, you know, feel free to offer the why as to why you think that's in the differential. And I, I would say, you know, add the why to, at least, especially in cases where you think, you know, you want to demonstrate why that's on the top of your list or why a particular thing is not important. But listen to also what the examiner is asking. So in some cases, they may ask you to say, what is your differential diagnosis and why? And so in that case, you would then provide a why to even the other one. Otherwise, just, you know, you don't have to provide a why to every single diagnosis that you list, but, you know, just for the select one that you want to demonstrate. I think that will help alleviate some stress with candidates if they are less focused on the number of diagnoses that they have to list and more focused on, again, explaining their thought process and the why and um, I would just encourage candidates to trust their instinct too. And like you both have said, they should list a, an amount um, that they feel is appropriate for the case that they're hearing and what their examiners are prompting. So um, that is something they can keep in mind as they are thinking about their diagnoses. Another concern candidates have is that the exam doesn't mimic their real world practice. So the interaction they have with their examiners won't feel anything like what they might have with a colleague. Um, what information can you give us about this, Dr. Wen, and how candidates um, can prepare for that interaction during the exam? Yes, we, we do uh, recognize that it is you know, difficult to um, create a scenario that truly uh, reflects what real world interaction and engagement is. When I walk into a patient's room, I'm chit-chatting with the patient while I'm observing what's going on. They don't realize that I'm observing how they behave, their, um, you know, their skin tone, their uh, you know, anxiousness or level of comfort, et cetera. Um, and we can you know, recreate that in a real uh, exam situation. And so the one thing that you can focus on is your thought process, and I'd said this before, where essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to see how you think through a case or a problem. So one uh, thing that you can effectively uh, work on or try to help you prepare for the examination is to take a scenario, um, you know, like Dr. Uh, Several mentioned earlier, uh, for instance, a hemiplegic shoulder pain and then ask yourself questions verbally out, out loud, you know, what would I uh, basically need to know in regards to my examination of this shoulder? What do I need to know in regards to the background of this shoulder? Uh, what do I need to do to work up this problem? And what do I need to do to manage this problem? And so 
you know, it's not a real world scenario where it's back and forth between me and the patient, but it's certainly the management of that hemiplegic shoulder. Um, and that's how you can, you know, prepare for the exam. Yeah, I agree completely with what we're saying. And um, I think, you know, it is not intended to, and nor can the exam replicate what is done in uh, all the aspects of what is done in actual practice. So what it is, again, just reiterating the same thing, it's really getting a sense of how you're applying the knowledge and skills that you do have to certain aspects of a patient care. You can't uh, obviously uh, assess the entire gamut of patient care, um, which is in, in an exam setting. Um, the other kind of specific thing I would say is, yes, there are some things that are artificial. So, for example, I remember, you know, when we are reviewing candidate comments after these exams, uh, at one point there was a comment about, you know, this is a medically complex case. And in, a, in my practice, I would typically review the chart and not ask the patient about these things. Um, because, you know, it's often the medical team that is done this. And yes, that is true. Um, you may not ask the patient that, but, you know, you what is really important is, yes, the exam is not replicating that you're doing. It may ask the actually what would you look in a chart to do, but it may say, what would you get in a history and physical? So it's the same things. So if you are going to be looking for certain things in the chart, whether you ask the patient directly or in the chart, uh, you know, that may be a difference in how it is reflected, um, but it's really kind of demonstrated that you know what are the kind of things you're looking for. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Great comments on that. Lastly, we'll talk about some more about examiner interactions. So Dr. Sauber, while some candidates may worry about the lack of feedback from their examiner as they move through the exam. This may be taken to some candidates as their examiner has certain negative feelings toward the candidate or is going to fail them. What can you say about that sentiment? Okay, so that is really something very common and we, uh, in terms of um, what we've heard from candidates sometimes, not as much as a concern, but as something that you know potentially sometimes throws them off, even though they're told that examiners will not give them feedback. So A, to again stress, uh, this is an evaluative process. It's not an educational experience. So examiners are specifically told that they should not be giving feedback, not only after the exam, but also during the exam. So I think sometimes, so I would caution candidates not to read anything into what, what the expression of the examiner is, whether or not they're nodding, it doesn't say anything about whether what you're saying is correct or not correct. You know, sometimes your facial expression um, may be, you know, because you're concentrating, it may look like a frown, especially I think in these virtual exams where you're not in the same room and you're, it's hard to read body language. I think sometimes uh, it's hard, you know, it can seem to be, oh, did I upset the examiner? Or did I, so I think that is something to just keep in mind that the examiners are really neutral. Um, the other thing I would say is um, that the other thing that I really hear from, two other things actually. One is this thing, we already talked about the probing questions and sometimes the probing question may say, why are you asking for this? Or is there anything else you'd like to tell me about this? You know, it's really to get your thought process. So the why might just be to say, okay, can you explain the thought process? Not because you said something wrong or the examiner doesn't agree with you. 
and the anything else, you know, sometimes that can throw you off. And, you know, if you have anything else to say, say that. If you think that you've said what you want to say, you can say that. Um, the, um, and sometimes um, we hear from candidates that the examiner just hurried me along and I didn't get a chance to express myself. And that is just because they want to move you along. They want to make sure you finish all the exam parts. And if they have the information they need to evaluate you in that domain, they'll just move you on. And sometimes that might be cutting you in mid-sentence. So again, don't read anything. Um, I want to emphasize one thing for our candidates that uh, recognize the fact that the examiners actually are out there trying to help you um, succeed. Um, we're not out there to try to trip you up um, and you know make you have mistakes. The examiners uh, are instructed and educated on uh, being neutral, and the reason being is what that does is it creates a significantly more fair environment so that one candidate doesn't necessarily receive more cues or more uh, input than another candidate. And so by being neutral in our um, utterances or in, in our uh, expression, we're actually creating a significantly more fair testing environment for everybody. And that kind of, again, uh, brought another thought in my mind is the uh, fact that, yes, we're all humans, examiners are humans, so our expression differs. Somebody smiles just automatically. Somebody's face might look more serious. You know, some examiners may ask more probing questions, some may not. So, it doesn't reflect how they're going to evaluate the candidate, A. B, and I think this is going to be covered in the uh, next or one of the subsequent podcasts, um, that the scoring system really evaluates. So say you think that you got a particularly severe examiner. A, there's no way for you to tell based on the facial expression, but even if the examiner is more severe, the way the exam is scored, and this will be covered, uh, I think, next week or the following week, is that the um, it's adjusted for examiner severity across the board. So I think that's something we um, also reassure candidates. I'm glad you brought up too that examiners are on the side of the candidate and they do want to see the candidate succeed. So that is also that lends itself to the the prompting that they might do too, because they're trying to help the candidate get to their thought process and explain um, and do their best on the exam. So thank you for bringing that up. So you both have given great information about things candidates might be worried about and thinking about going into the exam. Is there anything else you'd like to say to part two candidates? Well, I would say relax and treat it like a dialogue. It's hard to say, but when you're already stressed, I'm, it is a stressful situation because you're being evaluated and it's a summit of evaluation. Um, but the fact is, you know, it's really applying how you apply your skills in patient care. So try to think of it as, you know, just another encounter where you've got a patient and you're looking at the things and how you'll solve that. It's easier said than done, but I think that is helpful. And recognize, be kind to yourself. You know, you are more sensitized to examiner, you know, reading things into examiner when we're all stressed, you know, we, um, so I would say be kind to yourself. Um, and um, you know, take a deep breath and go into the exam like any other day for all um, You know, preparing for the oral examination is like preparing for anything else in life. Um, you have to carry out simulations to try to make sure that you actually get close to what the real problem is. 
Um, and so if your residency program um, offer mock oral exam, uh, examinations for, you know, the residents, uh, make sure you take advantage of that. Um, you know, uh, many times in my residency program, I invite my graduates who live in the region to participate in our mock oral examination. And also, it's a different process to verbalize your thought. Um, and so practice talking it out loud with your friends, your colleagues, uh, you know, which is basically the example I gave earlier, pick a diagnosis and talk through it uh, on a verbal basis. And as you get more facile with physically expressing your thought, the examination will go a little bit easier. Right. And that is also covered in um, episode four of the podcast. We have a few examiners on who all of them said it's important to practice with a friend or a colleague just so they can practice talking through cases and getting ready for the exam that way. So it's a great way to wrap up the episode. Thank you both so much for coming on today. I've enjoyed hearing from you both and you both had great things to say to candidates and um, great things to say about some misconceptions for the exam. So like Dr. Saberwell mentioned, um, we are going to be covering scoring on next week's episode. So we'll have Dr. Michaela Raditz on. She's our senior psychometrician at the ABPMR, and she's going to talk to us about scoring for these for the exam. So we'll hear some more information about that, and we hope you'll be back next week to hear from her. Um, in the meantime, you can check out our part two podcast page on the ABPMR News Center that has all of the episodes of this podcast and resources like mock exam demonstrations, webinars, FAQs, Q&As, and other exam resources as you prepare for the exam in May. So the link to that and all those resources is linked in the notes on this episode. Thank you both so much for being on today. 